0: This morning, we're going to look at John 2.23 through chapter 3, verse 8. 2.23 through 3.8. And let's begin by reading this passage of Scripture together. And remember, as we read, this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Amen. That's the reading of God's Word. How does a person become a Christian? Many people in the world still think, even to this day, that you become a Christian by being born in a particular nation. So, for instance, it's the perception of many Muslims around the world that all Americans are Christians. Others think you become a Christian simply by choosing to publicly identify as one. In other words, if you simply say you are a Christian, then you are one. Who can question it? Still others think if you weren't born into a family that belonged to a particular Christian tradition, then becoming a Christian is about going through some sort of formal conversion process. So perhaps you take a class where you learn Christian doctrine and practice, and you agree to abide by that teaching, and then you go through the initiation rituals of whatever church you're joining, whether Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant. After this, you're a Christian. Within evangelicalism, it's common to think that becoming a Christian doesn't require any of this. Some, It's far simpler than that. So becoming a Christian is about, you might say, assenting to a gospel invitation. So some might describe it as inviting Jesus into your heart or accepting Jesus. It's usually done through some kind of outward action like raising your hand, coming down front when you are invited to at a service or an event, and then praying some kind of prayer when you're prompted to do so, like the sinner's prayer. And then you might be baptized right on the spot or soon after, and told to start going to church. But whether you do those things or not, you are a Christian from that point on. Now, the problem with all of these ideas about how someone becomes a Christian is that they don't really reflect what the Bible says on the matter. No doubt, there are some elements of these descriptions that can be construed in such a way that does correspond to Scripture, But in general, they simply aren't biblical. And because of that, these ideas leave a lot of people thinking they are Christians when they aren't. So how does one become a Christian according to the Bible? It's obviously an important question. And the text we've come to this morning in John's Gospel provides an important part of the answer. As we'll see the answer it provides is actually far more profound and far more wonderful than the sort of superficial notions I just described, which are so common in our day. Let's dive into this text to see what I'm talking about, and then we'll reflect on what it means for us today. So let's recall what happened leading up to our text. Jesus performed his very first miracle in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He changed water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And this, after this, he came down with his family out of the hill country to stay at Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee for a few days before heading up to Jerusalem with his family and his disciples, presumably, for the Passover feast. When he arrived in Jerusalem, it says in chapter 2, verses 13 through 18, that Jesus cleared out the temple uh, of the merchants and the money changers, claiming that they were desecrating his father's house. In verses 23 and 25, the author, John, tells us about what else happened during Jesus' time in Jerusalem for the feast. There it says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not trust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew himself what was in man. Now, what this means is that as Jesus began his public ministry of teaching and preaching and performing miracles, like you read about in the Gospels, but started doing it among the crowds that were there in Jerusalem for the feasts, people began taking notice of him, as you would expect. Some were already concluding that he must be from God. Some probably thought he was a prophet, Others, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. However, what John tells us is that Jesus knew that their faith was confused and shallow. They neither understood who he was or what he had come to do. They didn't understand what it meant to truly trust in him and follow him as the Messiah. So, He didn't entrust himself to them. That is, he didn't take them as his disciples and begin to teach them and train them as he was doing with Peter and Andrew and Philip and Thomas. This text, then, indicated that there was a type of faith. They believed in him that was not what we might call true saving faith. And after establishing that category of people who had this kind of initial but insufficient faith, Jesus introduced us to one such person in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. So chapter 3, verse 1, sorry, chapter 3, 1 through 8, I don't know, I think I said it wrong. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. A ruler of the Jews. So here we are introduced to a man who was very important in Israel at the time. So, for one thing, he was a religious leader in Israel. John tells us he was, quote, a man of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a party in Israel known for practicing and promoting very strict observance of the Old Testament law, but particularly as it was interpreted by the rabbinical tradition. Many, for instance, of the scribes or lawyers, that is, teachers of the law, and many prominent rabbis of the time, would have belonged to the party of the Pharisees. They were the religious elite, in the nation of Israel at the time. And it seems that Nicodemus was a very prominent member of that party for two reasons. For one thing, if you look at verse 10, Jesus called him, quote, the teacher of Israel, which seemed to indicate that he was widely regarded as one of the greatest rabbis of the time. For another, John tells us that Nicodemus was, quote, a ruler of the Jews, in verse 1. Now, that meant that he was one of 70 Israelite men who sat on the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. The council was presided over by the high priest, and the majority of the seats on the council, out of the 70, were filled by priests from the party of the Sadducees, they were basically the uh, political aristocrats of that day, and so they took up the majority of the seats. But the remaining seats were filled by other prominent Israelite men, including many Pharisees like Nicodemus, and respected elders of the people like Joseph of Arimathea. Now, obviously, those who held one of those 70 seats on the Sanhedrin were among the most important and powerful people in Israel at the time. And Nicodemus was one of them. He was one of the most prominent religious and political leaders in the entire nation at the time. And this man had taken notice of Jesus. You can imagine how it had happened. Jesus had come to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and he'd begun to make quite a stir while he was there. For one thing, he'd gone to the temple and driven out the merchants and the money changers in the temple. And while Nicodemus was no doubt surprised by the audacity of that act, one can imagine that he may have Chuckled with admiration at Jesus for doing that. He's a Pharisee, not a Sadducee, and as a Pharisee, he probably always found it a bit unsavory that the priestly party of the Sadducees allowed that kind of commerce to go on in the temple complex. And then there were the signs he was doing, which John mentioned in verse 23. Now, we don't know what they were, but if the other Gospels are any indication, Jesus had probably begun healing the sick and the lame, cleansing lepers, casting out demons during this time in Jerusalem for the feast. And these kinds of public and unmistakable displays of supernatural power, this was new. This was... Not normal. This was surprising. I mean, these kinds of miracles had not been seen in Israel since the days of Elijah and Elisha, and maybe before that, Moses. They raised the question of who this man Jesus was. As John said in verse 23, many were already starting to believe in him. Presumably, among other things, some were believing he was the Messiah. And while Nicodemus, of course, had not gone that far yet, he seems to have concluded that this remarkable man had to be from God. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse two. He says, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, when Nicodemus addresses Jesus as rabbi, that denoted considerable respect, especially when you consider that Nicodemus himself was one of the most prominent rabbis in Israel at the time, and Jesus was a carpenter from a tiny Galilean village with no formal education. Yet Nicodemus calls him rabbi. No doubt, Nicodemus's respect was derived from actually hearing some of Jesus' teaching, over these past days in in Jerusalem, and seeing the way that his teaching was accompanied by these miraculous signs. As Nicodemus himself put it, Jesus' miracles confirmed that God was behind his ministry. And when Nicodemus addressed Jesus in the first person plural, did you notice he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God, well, that probably reflects internal discussions among the Pharisees, that that many of the Pharisees at that time had come to the same conclusions as Nicodemus. And yet, while Nicodemus believed that Jesus must be from God and had developed a measure of respect for him as a teacher, yet it's also evident that he had not yet comprehended who Jesus truly was. Because the way he approached Jesus reflected both a level of hesitation and of condescension. So for one thing, while he did address Jesus respectfully as rabbi, he wasn't ready to call him anything more than that at this point. For instance, compare Nicodemus' words with those of Thomas back in chapter 1, verse 49, who upon his first encounter with Jesus said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Well, Nicodemus wasn't saying that yet. And the way that Nicodemus spoke to Jesus saying, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, it all indicated that Nicodemus assumed that his judgment and that of his fellow Pharisees would be important to Jesus. It was as if he's saying to Jesus, my colleagues and I find you very impressive, Jesus. You definitely have our attention. And who knows, we might eventually endorse your ministry, but we're not there yet. There's still some questions that need to be answered. Answered before we can make a final judgment about you, Jesus. After all, that's why he's there, right? And as for Nicodemus personally, being such a prominent figure in Israel, the fact that he, it says, came to Jesus by night, it seems to indicate that while Jesus' teaching and his miracles, definitely piqued his curiosity and earned a measure of respect from him, yet he wasn't ready to sort of throw his substantial weight and reputation behind Jesus just yet by, say, meeting with him in public. Although, it should also be said that there may be something more than that To this note that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. For instance, later on in the book, in chapter 13, verse 30, you remember the scene? It's the Last Supper. And Jesus said that one of his disciples was going to betray him. And they said, Who is it? John asked him, The one to whom I give this bread. And he gave it to Judas. And he said, What you are about to do, do quickly. And it says that Judas Iscariot got up and left the room to betray Jesus, and then it says, and it was night. Almost all commentators agree that that's just not a, simply a commentary about the time of day. There's, it's, a, it's a moral and spiritual note. It spoke to the spiritual condition of Judas and the evil he was about to do under the influence, of course, of Satan. It communicated what Jesus is recorded as saying to the crowd led by Judas on that night when they came to arrest him. Luke twenty-two fifty-three says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And it was night. After all, John would often in the book, right, use images of light and darkness or day and night to convey these ideas of truth versus ignorance, good versus evil. So when John describes Nicodemus as coming to Jesus by night, you see, that was actually the time of day. But it may also have pointed to the darkened condition of Nicodemus' soul, that even though he was the teacher of Israel, he was blind to who Jesus truly was and what he had come to do. D. A. Carson puts it this way, he says, Doubtless, Nicodemus approached Jesus at night, but his own night was blacker than he knew. If this is true then what happened next makes perfect sense. Verse 3 records Jesus' response to Nicodemus. And what you're going to see is that Jesus was not at all wowed by the fact that such a prominent figure as Nicodemus showed up to talk to him. Nor was he flattered by Nicodemus' assessment of him that he must be a teacher come from God because of his signs. Though a man of Nicodemus' stature in Israel would be a valuable ally to his ministry, Jesus had no interest, it seems, in trying to secure his support by explaining to Nicodemus more about who he was. Instead, what we see is that Jesus set out to help this great man in Israel, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the greatest rabbis of the day, to see the true poverty of his own spiritual condition. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus mentions the kingdom of God here, I don't think there's any question that he's referring to the kingdom of the Messiah. The Messiah who would come from David's line was God's ultimate anointed one. The one whom God had chosen to redeem his people and to rule over them forever. Indeed, the prophets predicted that the Messiah's kingdom, the Messiah's righteous rule would extend to all the nations that it would bring peace to the whole earth. I just think of one prophecy, Zechariah chapter 9, 9 and 10, where you recognize the prediction of the king arriving and riding on the foal of a donkey. It was fulfilled in Jesus, but listen to what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now John has already told us, hasn't he, that Jesus is this promised messianic king and when Jesus began his public ministry, he started announcing the arrival of the kingdom. For instance, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he says, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about here seems to be the kingdom of the Messiah. He had come to usher in. Now, what Jesus was telling Nicodemus here then is that a person could not see, could not recognize, later he would say, could not enter the promised kingdom which he had come to usher in as the Messiah unless they were, quote, born again. Now, at face value, that was a somewhat cryptic saying. What is birth? It might be described as the beginning of your earthly life in this world. Being born again would refer to, presumably, the starting of that life all over again. If Jesus was saying that that was required to see or enter the kingdom of the Messiah, then... Who could ever enter it? Who could ever see? That was requiring the impossible to go back and redo your life. In verse 4, we see how Nicodemus responded to Jesus' cryptic statement. It says that he said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, it seems that Nicodemus misunderstood what Jesus said because he took it too literally, right? When he heard Jesus say a person must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, he thought Jesus was talking about physical birth. What else could he be talking about? And he sort of scoffed because doing that all over again would be impossible. You know, some reject that interpretation because they say that Nicodemus One of the greatest rabbis of that time uh, would not be so obtuse. But, you know, it does follow a pattern in the Gospel of John, doesn't it? There are dozens of places in the book where John records people misunderstanding Jesus' words because they took them too literally. The first was in the last chapter. Destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. And they thought he was talking about destroying the physical temple in Jerusalem. They took it too literally. In the next chapter, chapter four, Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman and says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And she thinks he's talking about literal water. It says, where can I find it? Chapter 6, he told the crowds, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. They thought he was talking about literal bread and said, give us this bread always. So here it seems that Jesus told Nicodemus about the need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, and Nicodemus thought he was talking about literal birth, and He balked at the impossibility of doing that, and how that could be a requirement to see the kingdom. After all, if that were true, then it would exclude even him, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, the teacher of Israel, from seeing the kingdom. Surely Jesus didn't mean that. It was true that Jesus didn't mean what Nicodemus thought, but... Sort of, at least he didn't exactly mean what Nicodemus thought he meant. So Jesus helps him out in verses five and six. And there he he follows up by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now there, Jesus makes clear to Nicodemus that the new birth he's talking about was not physical, but spiritual in nature. In order to not only see, but enter the kingdom of God, which had come in him as the Messiah, a person had to be born of water and the Spirit. Now, while such an idea may have not seemed as absurd as experiencing physical birth a second time, it was still a cryptic statement to Nicodemus. In fact, later on in verse 9, you see that he responds to all of this by saying, how can these things be? And Jesus responds in verse 10 by saying, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? In other words, Jesus expected Nicodemus as a prominent teacher of the Old Testament scriptures, to understand what he was talking about. What does that mean? It means that whatever Jesus meant by being born of water and spirit, it was taught somewhere in the Old Testament. But, where in the Old Testament do you find this kind of language, being born again, being born of water and the spirit? And the answer is nowhere. But, the concept communicated by that language is taught in the Old Testament. First of all, one thinks of the role of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament. It's, he is described there, the Spirit of God, as creating, reviving, renewing, transforming, empowering The Spirit was active in creation, hovering over the waters in Genesis 1. The Spirit filled the man Bezalel with wisdom and skill for building the tabernacle in Exodus 31. The Spirit empowered Moses and those 70 elders of Israel to serve as righteous judges and rulers. The Spirit empowered various judges and kings to be mighty in battle and to have the wisdom to deliver the nation and lead them. The Spirit made men like David and Daniel godly and wise. The prophet Isaiah said that God would put the Spirit upon the Messiah to enable him to accomplish all his work of redemption In Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. And the prophets would frequently describe the Holy Spirit as being poured out upon the nation in the last days. Like it used to be that the Spirit would come upon people, but now God would just pour the Spirit out on the whole people. And the effect would be revival and renewal and transformation. I just think of one text, Isaiah 44, verses 3 through 4. The Lord said, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing stream. Life from death, renewal, regeneration. So the idea of the Spirit granting spiritual life to people should not have been a totally foreign concept to someone like Nicodemus, who is an expert in the Old Testament scriptures. But there was one particular Old Testament text which described how in the coming days of messianic redemption, God would send his Holy Spirit to work within his people, to cleanse them from their guilt, to transform their hearts so that they would be repentant and obedient. This text is Ezekiel 36, verses 24 through 27. There it says this, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you notice the language of water and spirit in connection with a new heart And notice that chapter is followed up by Ezekiel 37 where Israel is seen by the prophet in a vision like a valley of dry skeletons and the Lord through his word and by the power of his spirit brings them to life. There's the promise of life from death, new birth if you will. You see, Israel's most fundamental problem, the problem which led to all the other problems, was the condition of their hearts. Their hearts were bent upon sin, and their corrupt desires enslaved them, leading them to do wicked things which resulted in God's judgment, leading to destruction and death. But in the last days, the prophet Ezekiel foretold, the Lord would graciously give them new spiritual life. The spirit would be like water cleansing and transforming their hearts so that they might finally be obedient and experience God's blessing instead of judgment. So you see, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water in the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He wasn't saying something totally foreign to the Old Testament. He's describing something the Old Testament had always anticipated. And that the prophet Ezekiel had explicitly predicted was coming when God redeemed his people through the Messiah in the last days. You see, Jesus was right to say to Nicodemus, you should have understood this need to be born again, to be born of water and spirit to see the kingdom of God. In one sense, that truth, that need, well, it's fundamental to the entire storyline of the Old Testament. I mean, the whole sad history of Israel. Indeed, the sad history of humanity going back to Genesis 3 pointed to the need for these very blessings. And Nicodemus even though he's one of the most prominent men in Israel, a ruler of the Jews and teacher of Israel, needed this blessing just like everyone else. Or he too would not see the kingdom of God. And if that wasn't humbling enough, Jesus made clear in verse 8 that this new birth which he'd been describing, which Nicodemus needed, was not something that Nicodemus Or anyone else could obtain by their own will or power. For Jesus said in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit creates new spiritual life in the hearts of people according to his sovereign will and power. It's not something that anyone can predict. It's not something anyone can control. You can't stick a sign up out on the road and say, revival next Tuesday, here. You could only see the effects of the Spirit's renewing work as a person whose heart has been transformed by the Spirit begins to show it in their actions. Just like You can just hear the wind. You can't see it. Now they grieve over their sins. Now they turn away from them. Now they want to obey God's commands and are striving to do so. These are among the evidences that the invisible spirit of God has blown right through their hearts giving them new spiritual life. Now, we're going to return and look at the rest of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus next Sunday, but let's just stop here and think about how the conversation to this point ought to impact our lives today. First, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus reminds us of the real need of fallen humanity, doesn't it? Pretty much everyone recognizes there's something wrong with the human race, but it's very common for people to think that the problem is not inside us, but outside us. So, think of it. Despite all of the atrocities committed by men throughout history, and especially in the 20th century, I mean, think World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, the mass murder of citizens by the governments of the Soviet Union and China and Cambodia, on and on. People still think, That human beings are essentially good, and the real reason they do bad things is because of bad influences, bad circumstances, bad laws, bad societal structures, bad families, bad schools, bad education, etc. But the truth of the matter taught in the Bible, confirmed by an honest evaluation of the evidence, is that human beings are not basically good. Rather, their hearts are corrupt. Our hearts, in our natural condition, are bent upon doing evil. And this is the root cause of all the problems of humanity. Now, if you balk at that, just consider the bad thoughts and desires that arise in your own heart on a regular basis, and all the bad things you've done and said throughout your life as a result of that. The prophet Jeremiah was certainly right when he said in Jeremiah 17, 9, famously, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The apostle Paul called man's spiritual condition spiritual death in Ephesians 1, 1 through 3. And he described it there as living according to the lusts of the flesh living in alienation from God and under his wrath. That's the Bible's uncomfortable but accurate assessment of humanity in their natural state. And this is why Jesus said, you need to be born again. We need more than new laws or new institutions or new education or new circumstances. We need new hearts. We need to be brought from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life before God. Second, Amos reminds us what becoming a Christian is really all about. Becoming a Christian is not something you inherit through physical birth. You're not a Christian simply because you were born into a certain nation or family. As Jesus put it, verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. Physical birth can't produce spiritual life. It does not determine your spiritual status. Nor do we become a Christian by simply believing certain doctrinal truths. Remember, we saw in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, that there were people in Jerusalem, Nicodemus was one of them, who believed certain things about Jesus when they saw his signs. But Jesus, it says, didn't entrust them to himself to them because it says he knew what was inside them. Nor is becoming a Christian about sort of cleaning up your act, reforming your behavior to conform to now a certain set of religious and moral standards. Think about it Nicodemus had that in spades. What he did not have. And what is at the heart of becoming a Christian was the new spiritual life that only the Holy Spirit of God can give someone. Becoming a Christian involves being born again. That is, born of water and the Spirit. Meaning that the Holy Spirit comes to you in your state of spiritual death like a a dead dry skeleton spiritually before God in your state of defilement and death. And he comes and he cleanses and renews your heart, revives you to life, so that now you have a new heart, not that old heart of stone, a heart which is inclined now to holy thoughts and desires what the Lord described through the prophet saying I will cleanse you I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules the apostle Paul called it the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit in Titus He says, the spirit whom God the Father pours out on us richly through Jesus Christ. Well, there's that language of the prophets. Paul also describes it in another way. In, for instance, 2 Corinthians 5.17, as becoming a new creation. This is what every human being, born into a state of spiritual death because of Adam's sin. This is what they need. This is what we need. This is what only Jesus can provide through the Holy Spirit whom he gives, as he said about the Spirit in chapter 7, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, John says he was talking about the Spirit. This is what it means to become a Christian. It's this inner transformation of heart by the power of the Holy Spirit that then enables a person to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ and receive all of the blessings, justification and adoption and and the hope of eternal life. As Jesus put it in verse 7, you must be born again. Without this, as he said to Nicodemus, you cannot even see let alone enter the kingdom of God. Third, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, it reminds us that the new birth by which we become a Christian is accomplished by the sovereign power and will of God the Holy Spirit. As Jesus put it, verse 8, just as the wind blows where it wishes, so the Spirit Gives new spiritual life to whomever he wishes. So it is with those who are born of the Spirit. The Spirit blows through people's hearts according to his own will. It's not something that we can control. The church proclaims the gospel that Jesus is the son of God become flesh, that he died on the cross for our sins and then rose again for our justification, that whoever believes in him will receive forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift from God. We call our family and friends, we call our neighbors and coworkers to respond to that good news by believing in Jesus for salvation, by trusting in him to save them. We know that faith comes by hearing, don't we? But at the end of the day, we know that only the Holy Spirit can cause a person to be born again through the living and abiding word of God as it is proclaimed so that they are then able to respond to the gospel call in that way. And knowing that, By the way, you've probably always prayed that God would save someone when they hear the gospel. That's why you do it. (laughs) Because only God can bring them from death to life. And when he doesn't do that, we trust the wisdom and goodness of his sovereign will. The spirit blows where he wills. And when he does do it, we don't say, wow, I was a pretty good evangelist. We just give all the glory to him. Finally, fourth, this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, it reminds us that being born of the Spirit will be evident by its effects. In verse 8, Jesus compares the work of the Spirit to the effects of the wind. Just as you can't see the wind, but you hear its sound. Providentially, I was hearing the wind blasting the back of our building. Well, in the same way, you can't see the work of the Holy Spirit, but you see its effects in people's lives. A person who has been born of the Spirit will not be the same afterwards. His heart has been changed. He's no longer enslaved to his sinful passions. He's filled with new holy desires. He believes in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and he loves Jesus because he knows how Jesus has first loved him and died to save him from his sins. And now, out of love for Jesus, he's grieved over his sin. He longs to honor him through obedience to his commands. You see, there is no such thing as a Christian who has not been born again. And there is no such thing as a Christian whose life remains the same as it was before. A true Christian will still sin, that's for sure. But she will not be comfortable with it anymore. She will not obey God perfectly. We all stumble in many ways, James says. But she will strive to obey him. And will do so more and more. If we've truly become a Christian, we're going to look the same on the outside. Sorry about that but will have been changed on the inside. And that will be evident by the changes that are start happening in our lives. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created, there's the new life, in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So while we're not saved by our works, our works testify to our salvation. And thus, if we do not love God, we do not hate our sin, we don't really desire to obey God's commands, we should really question whether we're truly a Christian. But if we do see these things in our life, it should give us confidence. It should confirm to us that the Spirit is truly brought about new life. How does a person become a Christian? You know, the scripture's got a lot to say about that. There's different ways I could approach the question, but Jesus gives one important answer in this text. He says, you must be born again. I wonder, have you been born again? If so, count yourself among the most blessed of humanity. In a sense, you are a new humanity brought to life by God out of a state of spiritual death. If not, though, then recognizing the condition of your soul and your need for life, invite you, come to Jesus this morning, thirsty for the living water that he alone can provide. He is the one who, as John the Baptist said, baptizes people in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful story, this true account of this interchange that Jesus had with Nicodemus, preserved through the inspiration of your spirit by the witness of Jesus' apostles who were there. We thank you for the truths that it communicates to us about the new birth. Lord, we are humbled because we know that only you can bring that about in a human soul. That in that sense, there is nothing that we can do to change either our own hearts or the heart of another. But we are also encouraged that you bring people forth through the word of the gospel. That as the word of the gospel falls upon our ears, that the Holy Spirit grants new life as he blows through a heart. And so, as we hear these words, if there are those who are here this morning, please draw them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Grant them new life. We thank you and praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who gives the Holy Spirit. That you are the one who baptizes us, immerses us, pours out upon us the Holy Spirit. And we know that there is no greater gift. That when you do that, we spring up like new grass in a barren land. And we give you all the glory for doing that in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.